Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare, and your host for this podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. Carolyn Jasek, the Chief Medical Officer at Omada Health. Carolyn is a board-certified physician with a career spanning health technology startups, multidisciplinary care, education, and research associate. At Omada, Carolyn supports the clinical and research teams to create and test the next generation of integrated chronic disease care programming via digital therapeutics. For those of you unfamiliar with Omada, let me tell you a little bit about them quickly. The Omada platform is a virtual-first, integrated solution that helps members make mindset changes to make lasting health changes on their terms. According to their website, Omada offers behavior change plus integrated care, all delivered at scale. They offer solutions for pre-diabetes, diabetes, hypertension, and musculoskeletal. And we'll dive into all that pretty shortly. Carolyn, welcome to Definitively Speaking. Hi, thank you for having me. We are excited to have you. Lots to cover here today, lots to cover. So let's just start with an easy question. What exactly does a behavior change plus integrated care delivered at scale mean? It is a mouthful, isn't it, when you first say when you first say <laughs> yes. it? Uh, so... <laughs> Essentially, we are focused on uh, what we call the between-visit care. So these are the parts of healthcare that kind of get lost. When you go to see your doctor, they give you a diagnosis, a treatment plan, probably some handouts, and it's really on the patient to make that happen. And a lot of it has to do with behavior change. It's taking meds on time. It's eating the right foods. It's remembering to go to a certain appointment. So what we are is the between-visit care that's integrated with uh, your regular provider to really make sure that those care plans and that, that those key interventions that happen between visits happen. And the scale part is because those types of services aren't accessible to the average patient in, in a clinic, some people experiment with you know, coaches or people in the clinic, that's not really scalable as a model. So we deliver those kinds of key services virtually, uh, which allows us to reach really anybody. Are you targeting a certain population, Medicare population, young people, you know, chronic people? How do I think about that? So our primary focus is in the 18 and above population. And uh, traditionally, we we focus mostly in the employed population. So pe- we, people find us through their employer or through their payer. We do have experience in Medicare, but not as much as with the um, sort of the working working population, working age. Got it. So thinking back to my days back at Aetna, we had care managers too that were also offered to all of our clients who were employers as health plans. Are you complimenting those care managers? Are you like replacing? I think every health plan has care managers. Then, you know, my doctor has the nurse practitioner who calls me and follows up. Where do you fit into that kind of uh, spectrum, if you will? Yeah. So we do definitely work with care managers. I think the big difference 
with us is we're kind of creating a category of care that hasn't existed before. Mm -hmm. Our primary discipline and focus is behavior change. Care managers are focused on access, understanding network benefit, uh, making choices about where to seek care, helping get authorizations, that kind of administrative support. That's not really where we operate. We're really there to help people identify barriers where they have, they want to do the right thing for their health, but they have, they have things that are holding them back. So we have a much more deeper uh, personal connection versus an administrative type connection that a care manager would have. Got it. Got it. So that helps. So like behavior change is difficult, right? Like I want to lose 10 pounds. My wife says I need to lose 10 pounds, but I'm not giving up my nachos. So, you know, sorry, I love my nachos. So how is Omada getting people to change their behavior? Well, so that's actually really, I mean, you've summarized it better than me. That's that's the trouble with healthcare. It's a five-minute conversation with your doctor is not going to get those nachos out of your life, right? Exactly. Because you love those nachos. It's a conversation. It's talking about, you know, hey, well, we don't need to do therapy right now, but what what what's bringing you to the nachos? What is it, <laughs> you know, what is it that you need from that? What it, What's driving it? You know that it's not good for your heart, but, you know, why are you doing that? What are the barriers? It's a lot of detailed questions and it's a, it's a person's day to day. So what's great about what Omada is able to do is we're, we're essentially virtually in their house with them and we can have those day to day conversations. So maybe one week it's okay, let's go from three days a week of nachos to one day a week. Okay, maybe next week we're going to order a half order versus a full order. And it's really that incremental slow change, understanding why someone's doing the behavior, what's the barriers to help them change it. You just can't get that done in five minutes in a clinic. Got it. So for me, it's the nachos and it's the cheesy goodness. I'm not going to lie to you. A little bit of jalapenos <laughs> and the cheesy goodness makes the world go round. Uh, so, you know, is this something I'd be talking to an Omada coach like on my phone from my couch? That's right. Not to perseverate on the nachos, oh, but um, <laughs> let's say that you're um, you're you're dealing with a brand new diagnosis of diabetes, and your doctor has said, "Hey, you need to lose ten pounds." And you're sitting at home, and you're starting to reflect on your lifestyle. Maybe you haven't even paid attention to your lifestyle over time, and now you're realizing gosh, not only am I doing the nachos, but I'm having a beer with this and I already ate a full dinner. I don't think I ever noticed that I was doing these kinds of things. You would message your coach about that. And not only that, you would track the meals that you're that you're eating. So you would track that beer and those nachos and the coach would come back maybe the next day and say, hey, I saw you had dinner and then you had some nachos later. Tell me about that. You know, what, what was that about? Were you still hungry? Can we, you know, what's driving you to do that? And usually what we find with some of those items, like what we're talking about, it's stress. So people aren't really eating with, I would say they're not eating with their stomach, they're eating with their eyes, right? Or their heart. So there's the filling of, they're filling a hole in their heart or in their, in their, you know, mind, not necessarily in their stomach. And so it's that kind of back to back, back and forth with the coach where you kind of get down to the details. God, I can tell you it's the Red Sox that are forcing me to eat my nachos. <laughs> right? You talk about the stress and you go up and down. You That's know? a real thing. It's stress and it's also uh, distracted eating, right? Before you know it, by halftime, you've had two servings of nachos and you almost don't even remember. That sort of mindless eating um, is a big, big, big thing for people, for sure. Interesting. Interesting. So we talked about the behavior change. How are you doing this at scale? Yeah, that's if I had to pick the thing that is really truly unique about Omada is we we have figured that out. So uh, our technology, what we've invested in, a lot of people invest in snazzy devices or um, really interesting apps that have a lot of algorithms and AI and different things like that. We've actually um, 
deeply invested in something called clinical decision support. And so what clinical decision support is, is it takes ambient data from the user, the text strings that they're putting in with their coach, their behavior, what they're logging in the app, and what we know about them. And it's serving up guidance to the human provider about what to do next. And by investing in that type of technology, you make that human provider incredibly efficient. And so we have algorithms and inboxes that push people up and down in the queue based on what the system is telling them. And this is really the secret sauce of Omada is that we're able for the user to feel like they're having an intimate personal discussion with someone who may in fact be having you know, dozens or maybe even hundreds of those conversations at the same time. But because of the way the system is set up, it feels intimate and personal. Got it. When you say provider, those are Omada providers. The Omada coach is not like my personal healthcare provider, my PCP. That's correct. So Omada uh, started out with health coaches, and now we have a, a more um, a broader care team. So we have diabetes educators, social workers, uh, and physical therapists. So depending on what your needs are, you might be interacting with one or many of those individuals. So you got any results? Talk to me about like what, what you've done. I love to talk about results. We have a, a, a internal uh, kind of motto for my team called we start with science, we insist on outcomes. Ooh. And that's a big part of, of what we do. So we look at the scientific literature of what's been shown to work in behavior change in an in-person setting. We adapt it to a virtual setting with our scaling capabilities. And then we evaluate it afterward. There's a whole area of scientific investigation called implementation science. This is very important because just because something works with someone with an NIH grant at a university, that doesn't mean that it's going to work with thousands of people in a mm -hmm. virtual environment. Yeah. So we invest invest pretty heavily in uh, clinical research. And really in all of our different areas. I think the, the study that I um, most frequently reference is our large-scale randomized controlled trial on diabetes prevention, which we did with the University of Nebraska. Uh -huh. And that showed the goal of implementation science is to show that you get similar outcomes to what's been shown in the in-person setting. And we were able to show uh, weight loss above 5% in a year and a reduction in hemoglobin A1C compared to controls in that population. So that's kind of how we approach our outcomes. And for the, the laymen out there, what will they think about in terms of the outcomes, right? You know, reducing A1C, are, are you keeping 10% like of the population healthy? Are you cutting thousands of pounds of people? How should like a, a general person like me think about this? Yeah. So when you think about outcomes, you think about the outcome for an individual and you think about the outcome for a population. So it depends mm -hmm. on who you're talking to. If we're talking to an individual member of ours and what they want to see from our program. It's really what their goals are. So some people come in and their goal is weight loss. Some people's goal is to get off insulin. Some people's goal might be to not have any more back pain. So for an individual, we would set that goal. And so for the average person, when they come in with weight loss, um, about half of the people that come through our program meet the goal that they had set out for themselves, several exceed it, and about half either maintain or um, do something else. And we're we're pretty transparent about our outcomes because behavior change is hard. On a population level, when we talk to a different constituent, like an employer or a payer, they really want to know among everybody, what is how is the population shifting? How many mm -hmm. more people do I have with diabetes than I had last hour less actually would be the goal that, you know, this time next year versus now. Um, and those constituents are also interested in financial outcomes. That's a big part of what we look at. Have we reduced cost and spend across our population? And we, we do talk about that a lot too. Are you selling to employers, to health plans, both? Yeah. So we um, ultimately 
we primarily work with employers, but we get to them in two different ways. We either go direct to the employer and talk to the benefits leader about our programming, or we get to the employer through their through their plan. So their plan may have uh, an arrangement with Omada, and in the course of conversations about the benefits for, the, for their client, the employer, the employer may elect to uh, choose the Omada program as part of a portfolio that the payer is offering. Got it. And just for our listeners out there, you know, I'm going to get some stats to kind of talk. We're talking about some big markets here, right? Like 37.3 million Americans, that's roughly one in 10 have diabetes, according to the CDC. 96 million, or roughly one in three Americans, have prediabetes, according to the CDC. And 80% of those people don't even know they have it, which is shocking. 69% of adults diagnosed with diabetes had high blood pressure, 44% had high cholesterol. And hypertension, 47%. Hypertension is elevated blood pressure, by the way. Uh, 47% of all U.S. adults have hypertension. I mean, you look at these numbers, Carolyn, and you would say we are not a healthy country. No, we are not. There is a lot of opportunity, and COVID certainly hasn't helped uh, in terms of the sedentary you know, lifestyle we've all been leading over the last couple of years. Uh, it is... Um, and it is uh, shocking, uh, the level of disease in the country and and sad that we haven't been able to do more to address it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not only sad, it's also expensive, right? I mean, diabetes alone costs the U.S. $327 billion per year in care costs. And just think about what we could do to that $327 billion if we could get people like me to stop eating their nachos. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of money out there that we could reallocate to other things that we need. You know, when I ask you, you mean, there are a lot of companies targeting these diseases, right? I mean, you're not alone. It's a pretty crowded space. Mm -hmm. What's making you different? How do you stand out from the crowd? Yeah, I think the biggest way that we stand out from the crowd is we are very, very focused on adding value and not adding um, silos and and more complexity to the healthcare system. So it kind of goes back to what I was saying before about the between-visit care. We really looked at the consumer population to understand where do they want to get their diabetes care? How do they want to work with provider? And and then it became very clear that people like their doctors, they want to keep going to their doctors, but the doctors are overwhelmed. Primary care, the workforce is getting drained. It's only gotten worse by with COVID. There's very limited time in the office for these activities like behavior change. So I think the thing that makes us the most different is that we have very thoughtfully looked at the entire healthcare system to try to think about how do we add value versus duplicate services and make things more complex. Um, so that's the big difference. And then, of course, the behavior change piece. But I could tell you a story about how Amada is the best at behavior change, but you could get any any number of my our, our competitors and they would tell you the same thing. Um, but you know, I believe that too, but I think a lot of people would say they're better right. at behavior change. <laughs> exactly. Uh your website talks a lot about virtual first, right? I mean, it's it's everywhere and it's certainly how you're thinking about it. How do you define virtual first and how is that different to what I would get from a Teladoc or American Well, who I think of as more traditional, quote unquote, telemedicine providers? Yeah. So I think virtual first, the concept behind it, it started with an editorial that our CEO wrote in the New England Journal um, way before COVID, actually. And it's 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 meant to be almost a provocative term in, in some ways because it's asking the question of 
what can be done virtually and what needs to be done in person. And so when we think virtual first, we think of, as you're thinking about seeking healthcare, your first thought could should be, can I do this virtually versus taking the trouble of transporting myself or the expense of a healthcare you know, institution giving me my care? So what can we think of first as virtual care? And he did a really interesting follow-up data analysis, which I can share, looking at the percent of care, if you look at CPT codes, that's amenable to virtual care versus not. It's a good 30%. So it's a lot of care. Um, I think the thing that differentiates us from other organizations is I think they would feel that a higher percent could be delivered virtually. But our philosophy is really that there are certain things that are really good for virtual care and deliver outcomes and add value to the system, as I was mentioning before. And there are other things that really are best provided in person. So give me an example of those 30%. What are the things that are better virtual first? So really the things that are best done virtual first, um, well, first of all, it depends on who you're working with. So there's two types of virtual care. There's virtual care with a provider who you also see offline, Mm -hmm. right? So there's the provider who you know and trust and and love and you get virtual care through them, like your your primary care provider in your community. And then there's virtual care like Omada where it's virtual only care. And so it's sort of different. I would say the care that you get with Omada, I've kind of already described. The care that you would get with your trusted clinician who you work with chronically virtually would be quick changes, quick check-ins, follow-ups. Maybe you've started some blood pressure medication and now you want to make some adjustments. Maybe you have some follow-up questions or maybe you had a surgery and you're at home and you need to do a follow-up visit, but it's really burdensome for you to go into the office to get that care. But that follow-up surgical visit can't happen with a virtual-only company because they didn't do your surgery, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Loyal listeners this podcast, you know, I've mentioned to them multiple times that I worked at that in CVS before I came to Definitive. And back when I worked at Aetna, we actually put together a virtual first primary care offering. Uh, we did that in partnership with Teladoc because uh, obviously at that point, CVS didn't have any clinicians on staff. But the idea, and I came at it from an insurance angle, was you'd pay a lower premium and your primary care doctor would be delivered through a combination of in-person services at Minute Clinic. You can think lab work, reflex checks, someone feeling the lymph nodes under your neck, Right. And then you'd see your PCP, the actual doctor, at a time of convenience on your iPhone or your Android, wherever you were, right? I left CVS to join Definitive before the program launched, but I, it has launched since, I'm happy to say. I've followed CVS from far, and I was so excited when the press release went out, right? I was always bullish on virtual primary care. Do you think virtual primary care can work? Well, first, let me compliment you on the Minute Clinic. Uh, the Minute Clinic was a big part of my family's COVID lifestyle. <laughs> we got all of our shots there and um, and some lab work. So I'm a I'm a I'm a true believer of the Minute Clinic model. What I love about the model, which relates to how I feel about virtual primary care, is it's really a hybrid model, right? So you have in person. Eventually, you have to take the blood from the body, or you need to right. examine someone's lymph nodes. Someone has to actually touch you. Right. So the key for me with virtual primary care is: is it hybrid? Because if you have a virtual only primary care provider and you don't have the opportunity to see that same organization or individual in person, you're adding complexity, you're adding handoffs, you're adding information transfer, you're adding duplicative services. So let's, as an example, let's say I see a virtual um, only virtual primary care provider and that primary care provider exists as a silo from my medical home. 
when I go to that ER, or even if I have to go into the in to for an in-person visit with another primary care provider, I'm now adding duplicative services to the system and it generates more expense, more inefficiency, and you're really putting the burden on the patient to navigate their care and have all that information transfer. So what I think is the best option is hybrid care where you for primary care, where you can see the same person in person that you're communicating with virtually. So you have continuity of care, you have continuity of data. When you go to the ER, when you need that specialist referral, it's all integrated care. And so we think of ourselves as a partner to that system and that between visit care that can be provided. When we started this program, it was actually before COVID, we started developing it in 2018. And what was interesting about it was when we talked to employers, we got a lot of resonance with people who employers say had a large population in their 20s, mostly healthy, who were traveling, right? So your consultants, mm-hmm. your bankers, people working actually for sports teams, because the theory was I'm never in my hometown to see my doctor, but there's a CVS no matter what city I'm in. So if I'm traveling, I live in New York and I'm going to Dallas, I'll go to get my blood work in Dallas, the nurse practitioner at CVS will put it in the thing. And then I talk to my New York doctor from the airport lounge or wherever I was. And it was interesting. There was very little interest in pretty much anybody over the age of 30 in this program within the employees. But that 20-year-old, I'm mostly healthy, and my mom's telling me I got to go to a doctor, that group loved this offering. It was really interesting. I love that you brought that up for two reasons. First, you're reminding me to give a shout out to um, you and everyone at CBS for choosing to use Epic as your EHR for the Minute Clinic. That was a really great choice because it allowed for interoperability. So if you have somebody who's in a different state receiving care, there were so many smart choices as that was set up. But you've also reminded me of another point that I wanted to make, which is a lot of this call is talking about where the expense is and where uh, the need is from a chronic condition standpoint. I'm all for checkups in the 20 to 30 range and people getting that quick blood work and everything else. But we have to be honest with ourselves that that's who's going to be accessing virtual primary care. Are we going to get the savings on diabetes and cardiovascular disease? Are we going to see those savings anytime soon? You could make an argument, okay, we're doing that care now. So, you know, we're preventing heart attacks in 30 years. I would like to see that data. Maybe we'll, we'll see. Um, but what we're really talking about is the 45 to 65 year old range that's having their first heart attack, that's having their first diagnosis with diabetes. What are we doing for that population? And do they want to go to the Minute Clinic yeah. for virtual primary care? You know, as someone in that population, thankfully, I've not had a heart attack, but I, you know, I go to Minute Clinics to get my shots, but I go see my doctor in person and, you know, he's longitudinally tracking my care. And that's what I want at this right. point, right? Uh, my daughter, who you know is 17, I'll be going to college in a couple of years. She doesn't want to go to a doctor. She's like, yeah, I want to be on my iPhone and talk to my doctor on my iPhone. Can I, why can't I do that? And so, you know, it's very much, I think you're right, your age, your state in life. Uh, you know, I'm also, I work in the healthcare industry, so I'm more cognizant of my health than maybe some other people who, you know, maybe need to get in that system more, but, you know, aren't always thinking about it top of mind. So interesting. Let's pivot a little bit because you hit one of my favorite buzzwords interoperability, uh, <laughs> or as I call it, the holy grail of healthcare, which, you know, will never, ever be solved. I Achilles heel, pick your favorite phrase, Carolyn. Is interoperability possible? 
Uh, well, it's definitely possible. I mean, the technology <laughs> is actually not that complex. It's just APIs and uh, and agreeing on it. Like many things in healthcare, it's not that hard. It's just really difficult to implement. So I would say 90% of healthcare is the implementation. 10% is the technology and the idea uh, because the technology for interoperability exists. Um, what doesn't exist is, but we're getting there with FHIR, is a shared data language and an agreement about how to transfer that data. What definitely does not exist is the incentives for people to do it. And that's why interoperability has been so hard. Um, we could talk a long time about interoperability and the challenges, but I actually find the interoperability um, data conversation um, kind of not relevant, honestly. I think the more important thing, when people talk about interoperability, what they're really talking about is care handoffs. Okay. And they're they're assuming that data equals a care handoff. And so what we talk about at Omada is transitions of care and care handoffs. And sometimes you use data for that, but sometimes you use a conversation for that. Sometimes you use education for that with the patient, telling them where to go, how to access care appropriately. Because what you really want with interoperability is you want a person who went one place who now goes to a second place to have their data and for that second provider to know what to do and how to pick up the ball from there. And some of that is empowered by data, but a lot of it is empowered by education, workflow alignment, uh, agreements that are with, that are you know standing trust clear clear definition of roles and responsibilities it's a whole nother part of work beyond just the data piece yeah so you hit on a key word there let's talk about incentives because so I think you're right you know incentives are powerful and people are do not have the incentive to change their healthcare or their behavior and interoperability how do you fix the you know incentives to get people to want to share information and improve those transitions of care yeah, so I, I think I'm sure it's been written, but um, I always I always ask people a question. I'll ask you if you were ever to write a book about healthcare, what would be the title? And mine would be mi misaligned incentives. <laughs> would be would be the title, and I'm sure someone's written it, so I've already probably been scooped. Um, but misaligned incentives is the single biggest uh, barrier to healthcare innovation in the U.S., and the reason is because you have a system where the person paying the bill, let's talk about the employer population. There's a lot of people paying the bill, sometimes the individual, sometimes the government, but let's just talk about employers. So you have the organization who's paying the bill, who's three or four steps away from the actual care, right? Between them and the bill is the payer, the PBM, the patient, the doctor, right? So you have the person paying the bill isn't even in the room when the money's being spent. Then on the other side, you have the provider who due to our coding infrastructure and fee-for-service structure is really incentivized to um, spend as much time with the patient, to see them as much as possible, to do as many procedures as possible, because that's how they get paid. They don't get paid based on value or on outcomes. They get paid based on service. Now, of course, there are models, there are ACOs, there are IDNs, there are exceptions, but the vast majority of the expensive healthcare in the US, which is fee-for-service, employer-sponsored healthcare, is pay-to-play. Basically, you go there and you get paid. And so the incentive for the provider to be efficient, to deliver care that delivers outcomes, to provide care that the that the customer wants, it's completely misaligned with um, the way that they get compensated. And stuck in the middle, of course, is the patient, right? Right. Um, who just wants to get taken care of. Yeah, but you know, even the patient has misaligned incentives. Like, I mean, I remember after you know my wife and I had uh, our twins, uh, you know, ten plus years ago, and we got that hospital bill, and it was like you know in March, and we we're in the annual health care plan. I remember turning and go, okay, honey, 
We hit our deductibles here. Healthcare for the rest of the year is free for us. What's the elective <laughs> surgery you've been putting off? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the entitlement mindset of the healthcare consumer is also a fascinating concept. I'm glad you brought that out. Uh, you know, that's changing with high deductible plans mm-hmm. and some other models, but for sure. Uh, and it makes sense, right? People believe if I'm sick or I need something, I should get that thing. I, I'm entitled to it. I'm entitled as a human being. And who's paying the bill and feeling the bill? It doesn't seem germane when you're when your loved one's sick or whatever. And so, um, for sure, the healthcare consumer definitely feels uh, that they should get the best um, at any cost. That's a really good point because we always talk about everybody wants to lower the cost of the healthcare system. Everybody, do you need to see the best specialist or can you see a lower cost provider? But I'll be honest with you. When I'm sick, I want the best care and I'll pay the highest cost. If you're sick, Carolyn, you should take the lower cost provider. (laughs) You should go to the remote facility, but I want the best and that's your problem. So you cut costs, not me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, not to get too existential, but the American mindset is that, you know, is that independent spirit yeah. and that, you know, individualistic mindset. And so we, we our culture is um, the best for me and those who are in my circle. Right. Yeah. And and, it, you know, we could have a whole nother podcast about how that affects America in general. But in terms of healthcare, uh, we, we we fight against that piece, too, because um, people do want and and feel that they should get the best because they know the best exists in the U.S. because we have the best healthcare system in the world, I believe, in terms of the science and the treatment and what we have to offer. And so people feel like you're withholding something if they don't get to access the riches of what the health science is here in the U.S. Yeah. We can get existential, by the way. It's all good. (laughs) Here on Definitively Speaking, we kind of go anywhere we need to go. It's the magic of the podcast. Uh, (laughs) All right. So speaking of existential or maybe not speaking of existential, when we were prepping for this podcast, you mentioned someone that stuck with me and it hit my favorite word, data, right? You told me Omada dives deep on smart data, not big data. What's the difference? Yeah, the difference is uh, this term uh, I I borrowed from a really close friend of mine who's in venture uh, capital who said this at a conference and it really stuck with me for a long time. And Essentially, the idea is a lot of um, there's sort of this assumption in our industry that more data is better. Mm -hmm. Um, I think more data, more problems. Honestly, there's a lot of garbage in, garbage out, Mm -hmm. especially with EHR data. And so what you really need to be thinking about is smart and actionable data. So grabbing the data that's going to make sense and be impactful, make sure that that data is clean and accurate. And then once you have that data, what, how are you displaying it? Who are you giving it to? How is, honestly, how is it protected? It's the privacy of that data protected. And it feels like people are focused more on the data grab and they feel like from the ether, you're going to get some magic AI driven, really miracle that's going to emerge from it. But you have to be very smart and targeted all the way from the beginning at the point of collection to the point of analysis and presentation. It has to be smart. Got it. Is there a place for big data in healthcare? Yeah. I mean, I think there are really exciting things going on in radiology, as an example. I mean, that's a field that was just created, I feel like, for um, machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, because the data is collected very uniformly, right, through the machines. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can develop just brilliant algorithms. So I think big data there is really fantastic. 
Uh, I think that claims data and health economic analyses are also beautiful things that can be done. That's messier data for sure than radiology. I think what people want is algorithms and big data around these chronic conditions that we're talking about. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about remote monitoring, but until we collect that data uniformly, not just remote monitoring data, but also patient reported outcomes, the big data benefit is going to just not be there because it, I mean, I think at UCSF when I was there and we were building a blood pressure data field, I don't even know. I'll pick a number. We had a hundred different types of blood pressure that we collected at our institution, blood pressure in the OR, blood pressure in the ER, blood pressure with this machine, blood pressure that was measured manually, blood pressure that was manager, me measured with a Dynamap. And they're all measured in different ways, taken by a different person, taken in different places. So are all those blood pressures the same? They're not, right? So they can't all be put in one place and interpreted as the blood pressure for the individual. And so that's an example of where big data you want that, right? You want all those blood pressures, but ultimately that big data, you can't make any sense of it because it's just too diverse. You need to figure out a way to get the signal from the noise, essentially, right? Right. And I think that's where the algorithms come in because, yeah, I mean, you're a clinician. You don't want 100 you know, blood pressure data points as beyond a patient every day. You want some sort of trend analysis or hmm, Justin's blood pressure spikes every day at 2.30 in the afternoon. What is he doing at 2.30 that's causing his mm -hmm. blood pressure to spike at 2.30, right? That's the Not question. Nachos. Nachos. Nachos is a late night thing. It's probably probably something at work. Someone, you know, will, they'll remain nameless. They popped into my office and I yeah, said something that caused my blood pressure to spike. So let's head on remote patient monitoring, all right? You know, remote patient monitoring is having a moment. We talked about that recently. Uh you know, definitive healthcare at our recent user conference, but, you know, some stats that jump out at me are, you know, the two remote physiological monitoring treatment service codes. So CPT codes had increases of 185% from 2020 to 2021. And then five remote patient monitoring or RPM codes increased by 20% from 2020 to 2021. So what's going on with the remote patient monitoring here? Really great things, I would say. Yeah. Uh, but any any entrepreneur is going to tell you it's not enough, right? Like yeah. you hear that every single week. Um, so I'll tell you the good bit. All right. The good bit is uh, people are getting paid for collecting that data, for the devices being put in the hands of the individual, and for that data being interpreted when it comes back. And that's a really important, really huge first step mm -hmm. because we didn't have that before. Before, patients would come in and say, hey, I've got this blood pressure cough at home. Here's all my Bluetooth data. And the provider would look at that and think, oh my gosh, like, I don't have time to look at that. I'm not going to get paid for it. And I know it sounds crass, like, you know, yeah. you're a doctor, you should look at a person's data, but if someone has their blood pressure every day for three months <laughs> that they've brought in and they want you to make sense of it, that feels burdensome. So it's a wonderful first step in particular, kudos to Medicare for taking a leap and compensating people for this. Yep. It's fantastic. The incomplete part is uh, with remote monitoring is we have to be really careful about what devices we're putting in people's hands, how are they leveraging those devices, and when the data comes back, how are we interpreting it and how are we leveraging it? The other thing that happens with remote patient monitoring is it gets confused with other digital health companies like Omada. Omada is not a remote monitoring company. We okay. do remote monitoring as part of our intervention, but there's a lot more to what we do. And it's the same with telehealth. People assume telehealth is virtual care. Now, 
for someone like you who worked in virtual care, you would say telehealth is a component of what CBS was doing, but it's not everything, right? There's the chatting, there's the content that people are consuming, there's the um, devices that they're getting at home. So remote monitoring is a really important part of virtual care as it's going to be defined going forward, but it's not everything. We're starting to get towards the end of time here, but I got a few more questions I want to get your thoughts okay. on. You, you are such a diverse person. You got, you know, fingers everywhere, you know, <laughs> science, healthcare, investing, RPM. This is great. You know, philosophy is on big data. So let's talk about the current healthcare funding environment, right? I mean, you're working in a well-funded startup and it's crazy out there, right? We've seen a ton of investment in healthcare tech over the past two years. According to Rock Health, $29.1 billion, that's with a B, was invested in U.S.-based digital health startups in 2021 across 729 deals with an average deal size of $39.9 million. That seems crazy. And then it makes it even more crazy when that doubled 2020's $14.9 billion, which was a record in and of itself. Why is so much money being invested in healthcare tech right now? I, I, I think the only reasonable answer is COVID, right? So okay. we we had COVID and people started to get virtual care at home. I think people smartly know that putting a doctor on Zoom is not the best we can do. Mm -hmm. So I think people are betting on the future being more just your doctor on Zoom. And so they want to invest in what's the next phase after we do telehealth, what else is there going to be? And people are hoping that there is going to be more and wanting to invest in it. And that's a fantastic thing. It's a really great development. But like most booming um, times, we've seen this with you know, tech as well, we're going to have a lot of noise. We're going to have a lot of investment. We're going to learn a lot. There's going to be some wasted money, but from it is going to emerge, I think, a, a consolidated next phase vision beyond telehealth and beyond remote monitoring. That'll be really exciting. And um, we've, we've exited the kind of consumer app in the healthcare space. We've done telehealth and remote monitoring, or at least we've started. And now this investment will bring us to the next phase. And it's quite exciting. Uh, but there will be a lot of a lot of waste. And um, and sadly, many of these ventures that started uh, will shudder, you know, because they won't gain traction. And that'll be hard to watch. But uh, but I think ultimately it's going to be quite exciting. And do you have any thoughts as to what that vision or phase is going to look like? You kind of mystically alluded to it there. <laughs> I I think it comes to, I think it's value-based care. I think what's going to happen is we're going to see virtual care companies are uniquely positioned to support a value-based care model because what has hindered traditional healthcare from doing value-based care is if you're going to do value-based care, you need a metric that you can link your value to. And data collection has been very hard for hospitals. If you want to do value-based care in diabetes, you actually have to collect diabetes glucose data in order to power your value-based care. So I think what's going to happen, it's talking about aligned incentives, is that the payers and the employers want to have their money be worth it. And so they are already coming to us and saying, we want outcomes-based pricing. We want performance guarantees. We want uh, we want a cost analysis at the end. And I think that's going to be really exciting. So that'll be the next trend is solutions that contribute value. So that brings me to like my last question for you. And it's a little bit of a doozy. So just bear with me here, right? Okay. But, but I, I'm glad <laughs> value-based care, I think really leads nice into this, right? So we talk a lot in healthcare about bending the cost curve, right? We've been talking about it for as long as I've been in healthcare, which is pushing two decades now. I'm sure you're probably talking about it. And yet for all of our talk about bending the cost curve, healthcare still makes up 20% of our GDP. And according to one academic study, and I'll quote now, 
Healthcare spending is the in the United States is now the biggest driver of the federal budget deficit and outstanding public debt, and healthcare spending is projected to reach a staggering $24 trillion in 2025. So you could say we don't seem to be making progress on bending the cost curve. But while I suggest the costs aren't coming down, I think we are making significant progress. And you've talked about it a lot today on improving the quality of care and outcomes. You know, mm-hmm. I think people aren't healthy, as they we talked about earlier, but we are treating a lot more people a lot more effectively. And when we get people into the system, we're generally getting better outcomes. So is it really possible to bend the cost curve? Or are we just kidding ourselves? And does it even matter to bend the cost curve since all we really want to do is keep people healthier in the first place? (laughs) So I think uh, it is possible to bend the cost curve uh, with 7 to 10% inflation, it's going to be a little harder, actually. But <laughs> yep. I, I think it is possible to bend the cost curve. I think the key next step is as we implement value-based solutions and as we bend the cost curve, we what we're doing for the most part is adding virtual care on top of the care that we're already paying for. Mm-hmm. What we haven't done, which is going to be hard, is taking care away from people. So in other words, saying, okay, you're going to do this solution before you can go you know, here and do this. And that's going to be hard for people uh, to tolerate. But I think if if the healthcare consumer is getting a better experience and is happy with the care that they're getting, they're not going to be upset if they're not able to access the other things as well. And so I do think that it is possible to bend the cost curve. I think it will happen. We have other, as I mentioned, macroeconomic mm-hmm. things that are driving costs up as well that are beyond our control. But it's going to take the discipline and courage to take some things away from people so that we can do that. And, and that'll be hard. On the topic of does it even really matter for outcomes, I mean, of course, preaching to the choir there, I'm a clinician. I mean, the only thing that matters to me ultimately is that people are taken care of. Mm -hmm. And the metric that really matters in my mind is life expectancy in the U.S. And so that is a number that has gone down. And that's a number that I personally watch. I think we watch the diabetes rates and things like that. But um, I do think it's possible to reverse our life expectancy. I believe personally that it's strongly linked to cardiometabolic disease. And if we start to get serious about cardiometabolic disease in the U.S. and invest in solutions, not just like Omada, but just our category in general, uh, and we start supporting people in that journey, I I think that we will see a reversal of that. Um, But it's going to take a lot of focus in the areas that really contribute, um, which is cardio, which is cardiometabolic disease. And um, so I do, I do think both are possible. And more possible now, actually, after COVID because of the investment and I think the openness uh, to change in healthcare. We, we, I mean, I don't know, we, we lit up telehealth within months, right? I've, yeah. I've been at institutions where we're talking about gobs of meetings, dozens of meetings about telehealth and where would the button go and who's going to staff it on Monday and just blah, blah, blah for years and years. And then all of a sudden in a week, it was stood up, you know? So we have the the ability to do these things. Um, we just have to have the courage and discipline to make it happen. As are wise, wise words, the ability to do things without <laughs> the courage to make it happen. I, I think that's a great parting note. So Carol, it's like, I can't thank you enough. This has been tremendous. You're intelligent. You're funny. You brought a lot of good insight here. We're having you back. We're definitely oh my having gosh, you should back. We, should we call my mom? <laughs> if you want, I'll call her. <laughs> Again, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you for having me. And as always, to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of Definitively Speaking, a definitive healthcare podcast. Please join me next time 
or a conversation with Scott Seidelman, Chief Commercial Officer at OmniCell, about automated pharmacy management and why a robot may fill your prescription one day. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, please follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care, please stay healthy, and maybe you should just lay off the nachos.